Welcome to Chronically Chilled on 3CR, 8.55am. I'm Naomi Cheney and I'm here with my co-host Mario Pazega and Jacinta Parsons from ABC Radio Melbourne. And Jacinta has recently written a book about chronic illness and her own experiences with Crohn's disease. Uh, the book is called Unseen, The Secret World of Chronic Illness. Jacinta, welcome to the show. Thank you. I feel very excited to be on this show. Thanks so much for having me. We are very excited to have you. Now, Unseen is both, it's a really personal book, uh, looking at your own emotional journey, and it's also a broader book, um, looking at how society deals with chronic illness. And you've woven a lot of people's experiences and articles and academic thought through the narrative. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what drove you to write a book like this? Actually, it's interesting because um, I didn't thought, think I had a very particularly interesting story to tell, really. You know, there's so much, so many people and so many experiences. Um, but I felt like I was in a position where I had thought about it so deeply for such a long time that I wanted to write about it, but I didn't really want to write about me. I wanted to write about illness. And I think the more um, I wrote and the more feedback I got on it, I think the more you kind of tell your story, it's a universal one. Mm. And so while I was doing the research and, and really interested in that part of it, I think my story always kind of is, or your own story is a helpful way to explore that universal stuff anyway. So it became more of that than I actually intended it to be at the start. I, I think it was actually a really powerful way to handle it though, because I mean, my, my own experience of chronic illness definitely has points of, of difference to yours, but there was so much where I read it and just thought I relate to this so hard. This is, this is really, really <laughs> relatable for me. Um, and it's, I feel like that's a really good way to kind of tap into people's imaginations as well. Like telling that human story. Um, that's it. I think that's it. And what I've always found really kind of amazing is I guess, regardless of where we sit on that chronic illness spectrum in terms of all the facets, the illness, the severity, all the experiences, mm. there's so much through line that we share. Mm. It's pretty shocking. You know, it's pretty interesting. Like mm. no matter where you are because of that nature, I think the underpinning aspect of chronic, it not going away and how that intersects in this world that we live in that really has no um, great capacity to allow for it. And I think that unifies us in ways that is really interesting and hopefully powerful as well. Mm. well. What was the writing process like? So I know you've been sick for, you know, a really long time. So what was it like to kind of revisit that and kind of go through the process of writing this book? You know, when it's been a really long time, you know, I'm 20 odd years in, um, you have lay in bed for so many hours alone, contemplating it of your death and life and how we work mm. and that kind of stuff that it was almost joyful mm. to write about it because whilst there's always grief in revisiting some of this stuff, it's almost, it, there's almost a depth of love in it because you have explored yourself and illness forces that exploration. And once you've had enough time to digest it, there's such a truth in it around who we are as people that there was something enormously satisfying in the writing of it. Hmm. I think for, for me, writing about chronic illness has really been, um, I, you're dredging up your own trauma to a degree. And I think that can be very difficult, but at the same time, it's very cathartic, I guess. Hmm. I, um, yeah. I, I think one thing I found interesting was that you keep, you kept coming back to 
this idea of the relationship with with fear and what that meant to you at various points and it really sort of felt like a journey that evolved over over time to kind of overcome fear I guess is that would you say that's accurate so astute I think this is a book about fear as it as it is it's so many things I think when your physicality is um under threat your humanity your mortality is under threat fear is a central player but it had been probably prior to it being challenged in the way it was and what it forced me to do was face the fear of my death and life and all the things that kind of sit in you as an undercurrent you know always and I, I think this experience has largely been about fear for me and no one's picked that up. And I think that's a really lovely observation. Oh, really? I've, I yeah. found that all the way through it. It felt like yeah. that. Was... Like, I feel like I called a chapter fear and perhaps it has, but no one's spoken to me about it really. I, I bring it up because I think it's a really relevant part. I think anger was a really big part of it too. Yeah. Like when I was reading, I was like, far out, so much anger. But there was so much anger. Uh, yeah, so you talked about being angry and it was sort of like and and I've I've experienced this too like you're, you're angry at the world for not giving you what you were told you should expect like you're you're told you're going you know this is how your life is going to go and then suddenly and not, no it's not <laughs> comfort you crave you know I found I was probably angriest at that you know when I desperately wanted people to understand and hold me at really hard times you just mm. feel so alone and cross mm. about that like hang on, where are you when I need you? Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the anger around that and just the changed self and trying to cope and understand with your identity shift, I think that can really kind of create a lot of that anger that, yeah, was deep. And something that struck me, um, you sort of talk about isolation, like you're kind of going through these feelings alone because the people around you don't necessarily, they want to relate to it, but they, they can't if they haven't been through it themselves. And you, you speak quite a lot about the, um, the medical profession and how that has played into this experience. And one thing that really struck me was when you were talking about the nurses who were just having a casual discussion about, you know, how to win the lotto. And it was, you know, while you were in a hospital bed and you sort of said like the emotional, how can they be in such a different emotional space to you in this hospital bed? Uh, I sort of, that really affected me because that's, you know, I mean, that's almost the stuff of horror movies, like that the the people who are supposed to be helping you don't have a clue what's actually kind of going on. Is that something, how, how do you sort of reflect on that, on that experience? I think about that probably the most of it really, because I think that incongruity of, our, mm. of ourselves in these intimate like spaces where we are facing life and death, you know, and then you have people who are looking after you who aren't in that space with you. They're just, they were at work and they're, and yeah. it's completely legitimate for them to be like that. It's, it, but they're at work. Whereas you're living at the edge of your life mm. yeah. and trying to meet each other there. I, I find that endlessly fascinating how we miss it most of the time. But then those beautiful moments of intimacy sometimes with a nurse at 3am who will comfort you truly, I think is profound. But I think, I think there's a lot to be said around the space that we don't connect there because I think, I don't think we can sell off the fact that we are having this deep human experience at the, 
you know, the, the not, it's not an excuse, but of the legitimacy that, well, we're in a workplace as well. I, I think we need to find a way to have ourselves understood the way we, we um, and where we're at a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, I found actually quite gobsmacking, and you, you came back to it a couple of times, I think, was when a, a nurse actually, you, you were there with your, your partner recovering from an operation, and you know the story <laughs> I'm referring to. <laughs> I can tell from your face. Um, yeah, where she actually just said, like, relationships don't often survive after people have had this kind of operation. And it was just like, I mean, it felt to me like she was actually sabotaging your support system there. It almost like we didn't know how else to read that. I just felt like, why did you say that? I, I just don't understand. I don't think it could be conceived to be done in any way other than what the hell, you know? Mm. But so many things were, I was reminded the other day, I was talking to someone else um, and part of the description of the worst case scenario of your illness, if you end up with an ileostomy bag or your bowels being taken out is you won't be a bikini model. You know, have you ever had that kind of the way the health system might describe to you the outcomes are, well, you know, obviously you wouldn't be able to walk around in a bikini anymore, but you'll be okay. It's like, how can you reduce these experiences to such glib comparisons? And it's kind of set up to, to diffuse and, you know, connect with us. But at the same time, it's just such a really massive miss on actually, no, you know, you removing my bowel is probably more extensive than the fact that I won't be able to wear a bikini. And yeah, yeah how dare you, you know? Yeah. It's that, that kind of stuff. The vulnerability that we are in, I think we are vulnerable when we are in hospitals and, are in, and in health situations. And I think, yeah. I think that's really at the heart of it, isn't it? Do you, do you think, like, because I've been accessing hospitals my entire life, um, and it's one of the things I've always reflected on, is this just this inability of the system, but also the individuals in the system, to actually do relationship very well with patients. And I wonder if that's kind of part of all this. Uh, I think right on the money, and you have had, as I know, listening to you, you know, your experience is so extensive and you understand so much about this. I think, and it's the more I talk about it, the more I think about it, I think we have a really flawed um, education system for our health professionals. I think we think about science and of course that's everything. But, you know, and when we've talked about it, one of the writers that I featured in the book um, talked about maybe there should be an arts component to a medical degree. Maybe you need to read literature and talk about the human condition in that way. Maybe you've got to, maybe we can't be so neoliberalist about this and kind of cutting out this dimension of the humanity and just say, well, you know, if they're good doctors, then great. I, I always ask doctors and stuff about this stuff because I just don't care anymore. <laughs> I, love, um, I love that. You <laughs> but I, there are doctors and stuff out there that are trying to change all this. Yeah. Um, but they mm. get such pushback. And I've also had doctors kind of reduce it to such a binary of like, if they're, if, if they focus on relationship and stuff, that must mean they're not doing the science properly. Like, you know, you can kind of actually do both. You yeah. Know? I had a surgeon I just couldn't connect with, you know, and uh, I'd make gags and he'd be like, anyway, rah, rah, rah. you know, and you're desperate for them to laugh at your jokes and like you, you know, there's a weird desire for them to, to affirm you. Anyway, that's another story. But I went and spoke to another doctor and I said, I just can't crack this surgeon. 
And he's like, yeah, but what do you want? Um, you know, what do you want? And he said, he used a, a mechanic as an example. He says, do you want your car mechanic to be a good mechanic or a nice guy? And my response to him was, but I'm not a car. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting as well, because I mean, when, when I read that, my first thought was, this is maybe not as true for surgeons because, you know, they've got a very specific technical job to do, but a lot of doctors are writing reports that then you have to take to the NDIS or to Centrelink. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a really good idea of who you are as a human being and what your struggles are in your everyday life, if they're not interested in that, um, then they're much less likely I think you said this in the book where they're much more likely to underestimate how serious something is. And um, so, yeah, it's, the reports are not necessarily going to reflect the support you actually need. If and how hard they'll fight for you when, you know, you get pushback from something mm. called NDIS on mm. the inevitable pushback that you get, you know, you need health professionals that know you and get you and fight for you in that way. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR 855 AM and we're here chatting with Jacinta Parsons from ABC Radio about her book Unseen, which is all about what's going on under the surface when you have a chronic illness. Um, Jacinta, there's, there's one part of the book where I was literally in tears when I was reading it um, and that's when you discovered that you were in fact pregnant, when you thought that you could not be. Um, and this was... Yeah, like, like literally I was crying as I read this because I was so happy for you when I was, when I was reading it. Um, but becoming a parent actually seems, it like in itself is a big emotional thing, but it also seems to be a bit of a turning point for how you felt about the illness. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it was a turning point in a couple of ways. It was really traumatic to um, carry a child when you're not well. I think that's just frank. It was a trauma and mm. it took a while to overcome that particular trauma of the responsibility of another life when you don't feel confident with your own. Um, but it kind of took me to that place that I guess we're talking about sometimes is, you know, a depth of reflection. And I think it was probably not long after kind of giving birth to her that I kind of had to make a decision to accept where I was and find a way to, um, to deal with it well. I suppose, you know, I still was um, quite unwell after I gave birth to her. Also just sort of realising even the hopes you might have as a parent, you know, the things that you think you might like to do and the, uh, the energy that you might have, you have to give up on that a bit and explain mm. to a person that you're, you're, not, you're not capable of some things, blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah, I think the turning point, for me, and I, and again, I think it is a really personal thing, but it was going to such depth of pain with the experience of illness, psychological pain, I suppose, and then having to make a decision to accept it, the illness state as what it was, and see if I could do a good job of accepting that and living with it. Is that, because for me personally, like when, because I think this, this moment of acceptance is really common to people yeah. with chronic illness like you when you realize um that you're going to accept the the status quo and actually move forward with that um to me personally i felt like that was a massive relief did you mm -hmm. feel that at all at the time yeah it changed my life absolutely and entirely um because when you stop resisting an inevitability i think and when you stop pushing it back and 
or that anger that we talked about before. Mm. Uh, I think there is a relief in that. And I think what, what also can be complex, and I sort of talk a bit about it in the book too, is that kind of middle space where you're neither well or unwell. You know, sometimes when the disease will mutate in a certain way. And it's on hold for a bit and you know yeah. it's going back at some point. And exactly. yeah. so you can't entirely abandon. And I think the identity stuff's really kind of interesting. Um, so I felt like I could really fly in my illness identity. You know, I felt like once I got a handle on it, I knew how to love it and look after it and look at the small things. And I probably started a spiritual practice around that time too, if to be really frank, you know, meditation and thinking about the self and the body and the spirit and how, what that intersection is, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've written a bit about, well, you wrote quite a bit about your financial journey, I think as, as part of this book. Um, and I've just, I'll just say that one of the funniest things I read in this was that you moved to a terrace in Carlton in order to save money. Um, that was the most nineties thing so <laughs> in the whole book. So revealingly nineties. Um, <laughs> like that doesn't happen now. What are you talking about? That was reality twenty years ago. It was a beautiful um, reality. <laughs> yeah, but I guess yeah. So that's sort of. I mean, that's setting up. You're talking about finances and and how your career kind of came and went and came back, and uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster there. But it sort of seemed like you you may have changed what you wrote a little bit about workplaces and how accessible they are after COVID-19 started. Um, yeah. How did that change the book and how you, how you approach talking about workplaces? I feel really cross actually post uh, the <laughs> Just in that, I feel like what we have seen is wide um, scale adoption of flexible work mm. and well, absolutely, you could have done this all for this whole time. Yeah. And it, it really fills me with such an anger because of how inaccessible work has been for so many people. The barriers are there and as much as they, you know, fly flexible work flags, culturally it's kind of very much looked down upon, isn't it, to be kind of wanting to work here and there and, you know, you look like you're a, a pain and you're a, one of the inefficiencies in a workplace, speaking yep. broadly and anecdotally. Mm. Obviously, we can support that through data as well. But, you know, I just feel so like we've been sold a dummy, haven't we? Like, you could have done it. And, it, and, yeah. and, and I, I will be so cross if this isn't rethought in such a fundamental way around access for people who need different ways to work we can work it should be we should have access to it and not be uh you know yeah it, that i guess that's kind of the long and the short of my emotional reaction to it post-covid thank you for saying that yeah <laughs> it's made me so angry as well yeah um, yeah and it's it didn't make it makes it really hard to ask for that accessibility and you know support yeah. and stuff as well you know so i'm hoping that'll change as well um just to and actually you know, give permission to actually ask for something different. Yeah. Yeah. And we shouldn't have to declare um, as much as we're required to. Mm. I think just being mm. a human, you should have an ability to have flexibility in the way that you work. It shouldn't have to be these barriers that we've got to jump. I mean, at the moment, it's a year with an employer and you've got to really kind of show you're a carer or you've got an illness or, or whatever, you're a parent. I just think, I think that's already a problem you know I think 
as a worker, as a person, you should be able to access flexibility. There should be a, a set number of flex, really flexible work um, within within organisations, and they're just job types that you can go for. Even you know, I just think, I think culturally, we're in we're in strife when we're kind of saying, look, I, I'm not well. You know, can you can you help me out here? And it's like, no, actually, I can do the work. I just got to do it differently, and I shouldn't have to prove who I am to you to have that accepted. I'm still cross. It just makes me so mad. This, this is interesting as well from like an able-bodied worker's perspective because I, I actually put it out on Facebook once. I was just like, how do you all just like go to work at nine and come home at five and go to the gym afterwards and do this like, and then go out to dinner? Like, how do you all do this? And like the general response from able, like, cause I haven't been able to do that stuff since I was 22. Uh, Cause that's, that's when I got sick. And I was just like, what, like, what are your lives? Um, and the response was just like, we're all dying. <laughs> we're all unhappy. <laughs> um, yeah. So this it's it. I mean, I think under the cover of that, this stuff can change. We all need balance. So yeah. you know, we all need to think about this paradigm, this structured sort of way that we have, um, an inability to trust the worker. I mean, it, it's just, it's all embedded in this really kind of sick culture, I think. I think it's across the board, not, and I mean sick in the kind of uh, culturally unwell rather than physically or, you know, mm. whatever else unwell. I just think it's, it expresses this, you know, as if you need your boss to watch what you're doing. How about we, we can work without mm. being scrutinised and, you know, checked on? It sort of goes into this, like the idea around welfare kind of feeds into that as well. Like this idea that we can't, we can't have a welfare system that discourages people from working. Like, I don't know any chronically ill person who oh. is happy to just exist on welfare. Oh. Like this is, everyone wants to work with the, like it's, it's, it makes us feel useful. It's part of your identity. I yeah. think we all, we all want to contribute. Um, oh. it, yeah, this idea I that you have to watch people is. Yeah. Oh. I agree. And just this, you know, I was on the disability pension for a long time. And so, you know, it's just a really good frame to understand the world from when you get spoken about um, in group kind of talk around your inability to save and your inability to, to look after money. Mm. It's like, oh, like, yeah, it's all of that. I think, I think there needs to be a massive change in the way that we think about that stuff. And you're totally right. I think if anything, people who have experienced poverty are much better at budgeting because you've been forced to. Yes, <laughs> rich people don't have to figure this out. <laughs> it's so I know. True. I think, and I've got a, I've got a job now and a full time wage, which is just a, a wonderful experience to have coming from mm. having not had that. But you know, knowing how to spend every single cent in the right way is is a skill you have to have when you're living on pensions like you, you cannot not know how to budget yeah um so talking about the the dsp tomorrow is actually international day of people with a disability and 3cr is going to devote the whole day to it tomorrow so uh people at home tune in for that um but i know as chronically ill people sometimes our relationships with the idea of disability can be a bit complicated what what does that mean to you guys like what does this day mean to you guys um, I guess it's taken me a long time to understand that perhaps I belong in this world. <laughs> you know, I think for with an invisible illness and coding as abled has been complex to understand that 
illness has um, been um, a disability. So I think I've still got a very complex relationship with this. Mm. Yeah. So I'd love to hear what you think, Mario. Um, I think I've spoken on, about this on the show a lot, but um, yeah, I never even thought about me being sick or whatever as being a disability um, and nor did anyone ever tell me that um, and I kind of wonder how much of that has got to do with gender as well um, mm. around ideas of what a man should be like and kind of how a man should deal with you know illness and all that stuff um, so I was never given stoic. you're not supposed Sorry? to admit that you're ill you're supposed to be stoic all the time yeah it's something yeah. I've been thinking yeah. about kind of recently um, but I think in the last few years, I've been kind of so unwell that I've kind of going, yeah, like disability is something that I kind of do kind of identify with, um, which is now like, which is now also kind of questions I've got in my head because I've had a transplant and I'm feeling kind of better again. So what does that mean and all that stuff. So um, I think the medical system as well would not act, maybe actively, maybe not actively, but I think they would steer clear of using the word disability with chronic illness. I don't know what your experiences have been like, but that's certainly been mine. Yeah. I had to fight for it. Um, and I like when I first became sick, I think I realized very quickly that this was disabling and, mm. but people were not going to frame me that way because it wasn't visible because I could still walk around because there was, you know, I wasn't in a wheelchair. Um, and I think, yeah, very, very early on, I was angry about that because it kind of seemed to me that there was this whole support system for people who were actually properly categorized that way like as much as you know we don't want to be put in boxes um there are, there are definite you know boxes that end up with okay you get the tsp you get the mbis mm. you get you get support workers from the council um and i really needed those things and i think so yeah i think early on and then i started working for disability rights organizations so you know and the the people with disability involved there were immediately like welcome you're one of us uh, yeah. So it, it sort of felt <laughs> very quickly like something that I, I did identify with on that front. But yeah, you're right. I think the, the medical system resists it in terms of um, when, some, when they categorize something as an illness, they mm -hmm. see it as two separate things. And I may just think that you talk about this as well, but half of the population has a chronic illness. So imagine if we framed it as a disability, what difference would that make? Kind of how we looked at disability and in general. It's frightening from an economic perspective if we yeah. uh, <laughs> get counted for everyone, or you know, God, what, what would happen? You know, all of that. I I would like to say like it's been um, over the last couple of years, especially when I've been really kind of deeply thinking about this stuff, being part of a disability community, even if I'm peripheral. I love it. I, I find it invigorating and intellectually stimulating and a wonderful kind of diverse community navigating the world in such an interesting way that it's just thrilling kind of, you know, to, mm. to be part of that on the outskirts, I suppose. On that note, I might actually thank everyone at home for listening and say thanks to Jacinta for joining us today. It's been absolutely lo lovely having you. Uh, Jacinta Parsons is the author of Unseen, The Secret World of Chronic Illness, which is available in bookstores now. You've been listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR and Mario and I will be back on the air at 8.30am tomorrow morning for International Day of People with a Disability. We'll be talking to Elle Gibbs about the Disability Royal Commission. Tune in for that and have a good night.